Hey, welcome back to Want to Know Idaho from Boise State Public Radio, the podcast that explores the curious elements of life in Idaho. I'm Frankie Barnhill. Before we get into today's question, a quick note. We're not able to get out in the field these days to report for Want to Know Idaho. We're doing everything from home using the technology we have, so bear with us if the audio sounds a little funky at times. We're super excited to keep bringing you answers to new questions, even during the pandemic. This question is from listener Deborah Smith. I'll let podcast producer Molly Wampler take it from here. Up until her retirement a few months ago, Deborah Smith taught high school English in Meridian. Every year, she had her 11th graders read A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. It's a great, great play. And... um... If Lorraine Hansberry were still alive today, um, I'm sure she would have so much to contribute to our discussion. This discussion she's talking about helps to answer a big question her students had when reading the play. I'll get to their question in a second, but first I asked Deborah for a little refresher on the play since, like her students, I read it in high school, but not since. It's set in the 1950s in Chicago, and a family of three generations uh, shares a one-bedroom home. And just before the play opens, the, f- the grandfather has passed away and through his diligent efforts managed to um, leave his family a $10,000 life insurance payout. The family decides to buy a home, or the mother, the matriarch, decides to buy a home, and she purchases a home that is affordable and decent, and it's in a white neighborhood. So um, a member of the welcoming committee comes to visit them and tries to buy out their contract, and it becomes a crisis for the young father Uh, as to whether he will bow down to that demand or, or not. Much of what we're told about the Civil War and the Jim Crow era puts the blame on the South. But Chicago, where the play takes place, is not the South. Reading about the blatant racism the characters in the play experienced made some of Deborah's students ask what else happened in other parts of the North, say, in Idaho. My students were curious about whether or not Idaho had any housing discrimination laws or um, so-called sundowner town laws that were similar to what we read about in A Raisin in the Sun and in our study of redlining policies. So we called up Boise State history professor Jill Gill. I teach courses on um, race, rights, and ethnicity in American history. And I describe myself as an activist historian, which is someone that believes that history has an active role to play in solving present day problems. If you don't know the roots of a problem and the patterns by which it perpetuates itself across time, you don't have a shot of solving it. So Deborah's question, did housing discrimination exist here in Idaho, a Northern state? The short answer? Yes. And Jill has proof. I actually found a map in the uh, Idaho State Archives of, it was from the 1960s, and it mapped every black family that lived in the sort of the downtown area of um, Boise, including the River Street neighborhood, which is where African Americans were allowed to live. And the segregation in Boise was 
pretty, the, the tactics that they used, the realtor steering, the housing covenants, um, the redlining, was successful because this map showed, you know, 90% or more of African-American people lived in that River Street neighborhood. In A Raisin in the Sun, the family experienced housing discrimination after they bought the house, when a white neighborhood representative tried to prevent them from moving in. In Idaho, it was the realtors, city code, and discriminatory practices, including housing covenants, that kept black people out of white neighborhoods. New white buyers had to sign a contract, agreeing to keep the property in white hands. It tended to be something to the order of, you know, nobody can um, purchase or live in this home unless they are of the white race, the Caucasian race, unless they are a servant, right, a maid or butler. And redlining, that was a result of federal policy that marked neighborhoods as green or yellow or red, based most heavily on the racial makeup of the area. These tactics were all in addition to the simple intimidation by white neighbors in the first place. And not only did housing segregation exist here in Idaho, but it helped fuel lots of other discrimination too. Segregating housing was the number one most tenacious thing across the North in terms of Jim Crow. Because if you can segregate housing, then you can get away with discriminating on a whole variety of different things. For example, if you can successfully segregate the housing of African Americans, that allows you to do job discrimination. Because when you apply for a job, you have to put your address on the application. So you can kind of secretly discriminate on race if you know that a person comes from a particular neighborhood, right? Without showing your cards, so to speak. Controlling housing meant Idaho officials could also gerrymander voting in school districts. They could channel kids into separate schools or slice up the black vote based on where people lived. Again, all without showing their cards. Controlling housing also allowed them to control zoning, like in the River Street neighborhood in Boise. So, for example, the River Street neighborhood where African-Americans lived had a kind of a zoning that allowed for more noise, that allowed for waste. Um, The railroad tracks where the connector is today, so it was a loud, smoky, warehouse kind of a place. It didn't have the same kind of zoning protections that most white neighborhoods would have. And so segregated housing um, allows you to do all those kinds of things. So it was kind of the key to being able to discriminate, at least for the North, in a lot of different ways. And they could say to the South, oh, we don't have you know, school segregation, and we don't have, we don't do job discrimination. Well, yes, they did. It was keyed to housing. All of this helped perpetuate the myth that racism was, and is, concentrated in the South. That's what Jill Gill calls the North's innocence narrative. The North had Jim Crow before the South did. The North didn't allow Black people in every area to vote. The North had segregated schools. The North had segregated neighborhoods before the Civil War. And the North continues that. So bringing Idaho and the North into this is critical. And today we know it's a national problem, isn't it? We're not going to solve race by looking at one region of the country. It's a national problem. So the North is as complicit as the South is, to be perfectly frank. I'm really amazed at how much uh, history you have, Jill. Um, I'm writing a book. (laughs) I'm writing a book. I I have been working since 2012 on a book manuscript called Idaho in Black and White that looks at black-white dynamics from about 1870 to the present. I just look forward to reading the book, Jill. I'll propose it to my book club, so. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So that's automatically seven copies. (laughs) 
Want to Know Idaho is a production of Boise State Public Radio. Our theme music is by Boise Music Project, Up is the Down is the. This episode was produced by Molly Wampler. You can listen to what she's working on for Idaho Matters by going to boisestatepublicradio.org. While you're there, submit a question to Want to Know Idaho by clicking the podcast tab. We're always hunting for the next story to tell. Until next time, stay curious, Idaho. Thank you.